You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're looking together at chapter 19 and verses 21 through 41. You'll find this beginning on page 928 of the Pew Bible. We are reading from the book of Acts looking at chapter 19 and verses 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 41. And again, you'll find this on page 928. Hear the word of God. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, Paul's fruit, well, his fruitful and encouraging ministry in Ephesus has drawn to a close. After three years of labor, his church planting efforts have really paid off. Christianity is now firmly planted and the church in Ephesus has become established. So it tells us that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And then beyond that, the apostle planned to visit Rome, which according to Acts 1.8 was considered the end of the earth. He sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him to Macedonia while he tarried, and that's when there arose, Luke says, no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way was one of those descriptions for the Christian faith and movement. It highlights the fact that Christianity is not just about true doctrine, doesn't it? Doctrine, as you and I both know, is very important. But truth is not only to be believed, it is to be embraced. The things revealed in Scripture and the things that God says belong to us are meant to influence the entirety of our lives. So Christianity is a way of life. And it's the only way of eternal salvation. And more specifically, the way is a description of the Lord Jesus himself. He said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very countercultural, very exclusive. And so this disturbance apparently arose because of Paul's preaching of Christ. And Ephesus, as you may remember, was one of the great religious centers of the ancient Roman Empire. It boasted an imperial cult with three temples dedicated to emperor worship. But that for which it was most known among the ancient world was as the guardian of the temple of Artemis. In classical mythology, she was the goddess of hunting and nature and animals. But interestingly enough, among the Ephesians, she was viewed as the Asian fertility goddess. They considered her to be the goddess of childbirth, the mother of all living. So in Ephesus, people thought that she had the power to give life, to take it away. Obviously, this false goddess was no match for the power and authority of Jesus. She had a mouth, but she couldn't speak. She had eyes, but she couldn't see. She had a nose. She had a throat. She had feet, but she couldn't do anything. She was a lifeless and worthless false goddess to which the Ephesian people were devoted. And Paul's preaching openly and publicly denounced the folly of such idol worship. That's what Luke's telling us. Demetrius would say later in verse 26, Look, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Indeed, it is the height, I believe, of deviance and stupidity to think that deity can be manipulated by idols. They're called worthlessness in Jeremiah 2. They're called false gods in Jeremiah 14. 
Jonah describes them as vain idols in the second chapter of his book. And yet these pagans and their depravity were devoted to these as opposed to the true and living God. And so Paul, confronting the prevailing idolatry of Ephesus, created a firestorm. It was a citywide uproar. Luke says there arose no little disturbance, and I think it's a delicate way of saying it was close to becoming a full-fledged riot. Because a few verses later, Luke tells us the city was filled with the confusion. Because you see, the Ephesian silversmiths, they felt that their livelihoods were being threatened. These men apparently had a very prosperous business making silver shrines. Very prosperous. And as the travelers and the pilgrims would come to Ephesus to pay their devotions at the temple, they would take these little silver shrines home with them as mementos, perhaps. And they were like little miniature representations either of Artemis or her temple. And as a result, the craftsmen had grown very rich by producing and selling these silver trinkets. So they were defending their way of life. I think we can appreciate their concern. But the problem was it was immoral. Their trade was idolatrous. God had said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that is a moral obligation upon every human being made in the image of God. And in protecting their economic interests, they had set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. And might I add that anytime you and I rob God of his glory, we do the very same thing. We may not be devoted to pagan shrines. We may not purchase religious trinkets, and that's a good thing. But you and I are just as prone to placing our minds, our wills, and our affections upon other things and taking them off from God. It's so easy to slip into idolatry, isn't it? We exchange the glory of God for the insufficiency of the creature. Every time that we violate a commandment, those ten, just to satisfy our pleasure, we fall into idolatry. Oh, we might try to justify our disobedience. We might try to blame it on circumstances or charge others with our guilt or excuse ourselves because of some perceived necessity. Yet I have to say, and I'm as convicted about this as you are, insofar as we disobey God by gratifying our desire, it is idolatry. To use the language of the apostle, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Aren't we not very clever at explaining away our moral obligations? Let's not fool ourselves. Let's recognize together how easily we can deceive ourselves. Christianity is costly. It involves self-denial. It requires self-sacrifice. And it is easy to affirm that as long as it doesn't apply to our own sacred cow, to use an Indian term. Parents, for example, sometimes idolize their children and refuse to discipline them. Or they refuse to submit to God's providence. 
I know a man, he's a friend of our family, whose young daughter died of a disease over 50 years ago. Tragic, terrible episode in his life. But he's never stopped blaming God. He's bitter. He will not set foot in a church. Spouses can idolize each other. Perhaps you've read the book by Sheldon Van Auken called A Severe Mercy. He describes how he and his young wife as pagans pledged always to put their love before everything else. But when they were converted, they began to sense that the attitude was somewhat improper. And then she got sick and she suffered and she died. And he found himself wrestling with the faith, how difficult it was for him. His heart was raw with pain. But eventually he began to see it as God's severe mercy because it delivered him from idolatry. Others idolize work and defraud themselves of the richness of God's rest. Athletes idolize their sports and recreations and they give lip service to the Christian Sabbath. Adulterers idolize sex and at the cost of their chastity, they seek sinful pleasures as you and I both know. It's rampant in our culture. So we may not have pagan temples and stone gods and silver idols, but there is idolatry. And regardless of how it's packaged, idolatry is of the flesh and from the devil. And the psalmist tells us those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So I ask myself, I have to, what is it in my life other than God around which my goals revolve? On what is the majority of my time spent? You know, pastors can be idolaters. Idolize this, this, this. Where are my talents applied? On what do I devote my treasure? To whom do I pay most attention? The answers to questions like these provide evidence of the state of my soul. Examine your heart. Perhaps a good way to phrase it is this. What are in my life the non-negotiables? And if you are saying something like this, it's very telling. You know something? I can give up a lot for Jesus. I could not, and I will not give up that. That's idolatry. And God takes special notice of, and he is much displeased with, the sin of having any other God. So here we find the Apostle Paul persuading many people about the folly of making and serving idols. And because of economics and its tight binding with religion in that era, the gospel was making itself felt. Pilgrims flocked from all over the ancient world to Artemis' temple in Ephesus. Steady flow. And as a result, not just the silversmith union, but the entire city became wealthy. The Artemis cult and its temple were the hub of Ephesian economic life. And when Paul's preaching began to put a dent in their profits, the craftsmen woke up. The spread of Christianity caused the demand for silver shrines to plummet. Simple economics, supply and demand, right? 
As people turned from their idols to serve the true and living God, the economy took a big hit. So if this trend continued, their entire industry would soon dry up. And of course, that fact was not lost upon Demetrius and the rest of the union. He was deeply concerned about their finances. He hastily calls a meeting, and with an impassioned speech, he persuades his colleagues to protest. We got to do something. Because the Christian faith had hit them hard where it mattered most to them, their wallet. This was their primary means of support. It provided their necessities, their comforts, and a very high standard of living. But Demetrius was clever, you'll notice. He knew that economic concern was not enough. If they were going to stop Christianity, they needed the force of a mob. They needed the whole city to come in force. So in order to convince not only the guild, but the city itself, he appealed to civic pride. He said, there is danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also, fellow citizens, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence. In other words, if Christianity is allowed to go unchecked, my friends, it will bring down the city of Ephesus. And there is nothing like hometown enthusiasm to arouse sympathy for a cause, right? Look at our sports teams. We, we all come together. You might call it nationalism or patriotism or civic pride, whatever it's called. It worked, and the people refused to stand by idly and watch as their city and their economy were destroyed. They're not about to let this eccentric Jew and his Christ bankrupt their guild and ruin their city. So they did what all mobs tend to do. They started a public demonstration, and as the silversmiths ran through the streets, this great crowd formed, and they joined in the chant, great is the Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. So their fury was spent in expressing their hubris and exalting themselves. And as far as I'm concerned, this scene was the Tower of Babel all over again. Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's companions, were seized. Paul himself would have addressed them, but they wisely prevented him from doing so, and they rushed into the amphitheater that could hold, mind you, 25,000 spectators. That's how big it was. 25,000 people. That's a mob. Utter confusion. The majority of them didn't even know why they were there. It was mob mentality and mob rule and zeal for idol worship was at a fever pitch. And isn't it amazing how unified the world can be when they are opposing Christ? And it could have developed into a full-blown riot were it not for the city clerk who intervened and said and warned that such a public disturbance could bring civic penalties. Well, that, that quieted them down. So what we find in this passage is a clash between two opposite kingdoms, two opposing kingdoms. On the one hand is the kingdom of God, and on the other hand is the kingdom of the devil. And according to the principles of the latter, Ephesus was a shining star among cities. It was beautiful, prosperous, prominent, highly esteemed in the world, the city of Ephesus. 
But according to the principles of the former, the kingdom of God, it was idolatrous and desperately wicked. There probably was very little religious tension within that city before Paul arrived. She was at ease in her sin, and the Ephesians did as they pleased, and they died in their sins. Simple as that. Everything changed when the apostle came and proclaimed the gospel. And you and I both know what he was saying. He preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. He told them that Jesus, the God-man, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And he said to them, I'm sure, that that blood is applied only and exclusively to those who believe. He told them repentance was necessary and that they must turn from their sin, especially the sin of idolatry. And he labored daily and his ministry was producing tremendous fruit. And the gospel, as Luke records, was changing hearts and renewing minds and reforming lives. So one by one, household by household, the city was being transformed. And as that happened, the devil's kingdom retaliated with a violent upheaval. And as long as Christianity keeps to itself, the world might choose to leave it alone. But let the gospel make an impact. Let it change hearts. Let it reform lives. And then the world will rise up in fury and fiercely oppose its advance. Let the truth hit where it hurts, in their wallets. And the world will retaliate. It'll be war. There will be fierce conflict between good and evil, and such conflict is ultimately between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And I believe that it's waged on at least three levels, the spiritual realm, the realm of society, and the realm of the human soul. First of all, behind Ephesus, there was an unseen conflict in the spiritual realm. We have to understand this. There were things going on in the invisible world that influenced these events. You could not have seen them with your physical eyes, but they were real nonetheless. Do you remember what was read earlier by Elder Van Drunen? That the angel was speaking to the prophet Daniel. He's talking about the prince of the kingdom of Persia resisting him and the princes, the kings of Persia and the prince of Greece and so forth. These things are spiritual entities. And the battles in the spiritual realm seem to have immediate impact upon earthly events. Paul speaks of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. He tells us about spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he refers to the prince of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience. The demonic forces of Satan's kingdom wage war against the kingdom of God. And that's what influenced the situation at Ephesus. God's kingdom advanced in the devil's territory, so it stirred up Demetrius. Satan exploits the sin of that man to manipulate the crowds in Ephesus. And he does so because he hates the gospel. And he'll do anything and everything in his power to destroy it. He'll use ignorant, unbelieving, sinful men to rise up in opposition 
And it's a stark reminder that Satan is a powerful being. I don't want to give him too much credit. But I will, according to God's word, give him the credit that is his due. He is the prince of this world. And the world worships and serves him, and the devil has many followers, and there is no place under heaven without some sort of Satan's minions. And there is no true love among devils, none. But they are united against Christ. Satan cannot create or give life like God, who alone is the author of life, but the devil can use and abuse God's creation in unimaginable ways. Think of the magicians of Egypt who opposed Moses and Aaron. Consider, too, what he was able to do with the calamities that struck poor Job. And I ask the question, what is man compared to the demonic beings that inhabit the spirit realm? What is human power and intellect compared to the power and cunning of devils? We are by comparison like children to giants. We're no match for them. Were it not for Jesus Christ, our King, we'd have no hope of deliverance. So let's not take the devil or his followers for granted. They're powerful. They will not bother you if you deny God. Disregard the kingdom of Christ and reject Jesus. They will leave you alone. You are no threat to them, and in fact, you might be an asset to their cause. But once you receive Christ by faith and seek his kingdom first, there will be opposition. And the forces of evil and the powers of hell will seek to destroy you and your faith. So we must not underestimate the enemy. He's like a lion seeking someone to devour. And yet I have to say with the same breath, true believers have no reason to fear because of Jesus, our King. No reason to fear. John tells us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So as believers, we are God's children and God is a faithful father. And the spirit of Christ who dwells in our hearts is more powerful than Satan, infinitely more powerful. And it's by the Spirit's strength and grace alone that we're able to resist and overcome. So though the wicked ruler of this present darkness is a powerful adversary, let's never forget it, yet the children of, God, of Christ need not despair because God ensures the victory. He's provided the Christian soldier with everything he needs, the armor of God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul tells us. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's an unseen and yet very real conflict. But that leads to the second observation because this conflict between kingdoms manifests itself in societies. Notice how the societies of this world are full of paganism and idolatry and immorality and unbelief. The city of Ephesus is just one example. It was covered in spiritual darkness. But when Paul preached Christ, light began to infiltrate and illuminate the society, and the devil didn't go, let it go unchallenged. The city of Ephesus was turned upside down. What's interesting to me is that it was turned upside down not because of political maneuvering, 
not because of judicial legislation, not because of military power or academic research, none of that. Ephesus was being changed from the inside out and from the bottom up because of the gospel of Christ. And insofar as we faithfully preach and consistently live the gospel, we're going to make an impact. And we can expect opposition. Paul says those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be surprised when it happens. Don't be surprised. There's a conflict between good and evil, and it's very real. Look in any sphere of society, and you see how the world treats and views Christians, don't you? Whether it's academia, politics, business, believers are not well treated. Sometimes better treated than other times, but we ought to be the best students, the best citizens, the most hardest working employees, and yet at best we're going to be marginalized or at worst persecuted. That's how the world views Christians. Sometimes professing Christians can be annoying. That's true. But oftentimes, such ill treatment is the result of enmity between good and evil. So that's the second observation. The spiritual realm, societies, but then third and finally, the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil is waged in the human soul. The soul. It's a tremendous battleground where daily wars are fought. And wherever the gospel is preached, a great struggle ensues for the souls of sinners. By nature, you and I both know that our minds are dark and our necks are stiff and our hearts are barred against the Lord Jesus. That's who we are by nature. As sinners, we're like fortified castles with iron bars guarding the gates of the soul. You can't break in. And through his ambassadors, Christ pleads with them, be reconciled to God. And if... And it's a big if, by his spirit, those iron gates are opened. The sinner is sweetly converted. What a wonderful thing. And there are many kinds of bars that by nature guard the unregenerate heart. There's pride. There's covetousness. There's lust or selfish ambition. There's worldliness. There's even sloth. And only a strong man superior to Satan, can come along and set that captive free. And I wonder if there's someone here this morning who finds himself or herself still in the devil's kingdom. I wonder. Perhaps you've come to church this morning as habit or at the invitation of a friend or family member. That's why you're here. You're sitting in worship, you've positioned yourself under the word of God, and you're conscious of, your conscience is being pricked, just slightly pricked. And you're beginning to realize, perhaps for the very first time, the state of your soul and the danger of your situation. And initially, there is this conflict in your soul about what to do. You've never thought about this before. That's the spirit at work. He's dealing with you, and if that's the case, he's convicting you. And at this moment, I have to say, heaven and hell hang in the balance. 
because your soul at that point is at stake and you ought not let this opportunity slip away because, my friend, it may never come around again. And all you need to do is ask the Lord to deliver you because he is a strong man. All you need to do is ask the divine human strong man to free you because he is ready and willing to forgive your sins and to save your soul if you will only ask him. What does it say in Psalm 50? Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But then I wonder if there are others, perhaps professing Christians in our midst, who feel bogged down by the struggle within. This this conflict within the human soul, this conflict between kingdoms, is a struggle. Or as Lloyd-Jones puts it, the Christian is one who seems to be always walking on a knife edge, as we discussed yesterday. And you've often fought hard as a Christian. You've tried your best. You have applied all your strength. But no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to overcome that particular sin. In fact, the more you try, the more sin's power seems to surprise you. And that's because you're no match for the enemy which lives within your own heart. Sin. Christ is the strong man. He's the one who's overcome, and his spirit is the one who gives strength. That's why Paul reminds us, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So if that's you, the only encouragement I can give you is simply this, that you should not hesitate to ask him for the grace needed to win the day. And he'll give it. And you can live the Christian life, and you can glorify God and experience the richness that Christ wants for you. I hope this is encouraging to God's people, and it's a wonderful thing for us to consider together. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the record of this situation in Ephesus. We're grateful for the preaching of the gospel and the wonderful benefits that Christ has obtained for us, his disciples. We recognize that there is a conflict, an age-old struggle between good and evil, even within our own hearts. And so we pray that you'll equip us and enable us as individuals, as families, as a church, to resist evil and to seek first your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.